Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. So here we are in, in chapter 3. Last week, we looked at here in Timothy Um, Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, and he's gotten to this point in chapter 3 where now he's kind of putting some some structure to to the church a little bit. He's instructing Timothy, okay, Timothy, here's here's what the the structure of the church is going to look like a little bit. Now, as we'll see today and next week and maybe in the next few weeks, there are some things in Scripture that in my mind, are are very clear, and and this is the structure of the church, this is the roles of men and women, and then there's other places where it's, it's not as clear. Great churches, great biblical teaching churches uh, will come down differently on certain areas and have a different, um, determine things a little differently. We call that our circle. If you've been attending the Ridge and you were here several months ago, we put a big circle on the stage or on the screen and said, you know, there's things in our circle that we clearly understand and believe. Some of those are beliefs, some are practices, some are not you know, it's just the way we decide to do something. There are things outside our circle that other churches do that we don't have in our circle. And so, like, one of the things we've been talking about is that we look at the role of elder pastor um, for a man in Scripture. We believe that God, by his structure and his design, has made it so that men are to lead and teach the church. Now, immediately, and Pastor Brian did a great job talking about this a few weeks ago, um, that does not mean that there are not qualified women that could teach, that, that are handled the scripture extremely well, maybe better than me, I'm sure. But, but God has put a structure in place. And so while women can teach over other, other women and, and teach young children, uh, we believe that, that, that God has put in scripture a structure that for whatever reason, for his purposes, he's built this structure. And I would say that structure runs through all of creation in many ways. Um, God instituted governments. Now, governments are flawed and sinful, even our government, but yet it was for our good. God institutes parents over children. There's a structure there, and it's for good. He institutes a structure in the church. It's for good. It's for his purposes. And so we just want to see that in Scripture. And I know for some of us, when we, when we come to something, and our flesh wants something else sometimes. It wants a different structure. It wants something different And look, that's true for all of us. Not all of us are going to get what we want. God has set a structure down and said, look, this is what I want. I want you to yield to my structure. And so, and and trust him in this. And so as I've been thinking through this a little bit, and we've looked at these passages, last week we looked at, that. we said, well, okay, not, not only do we believe in Scripture that, that, it's, that, that men are for the role of elder pastor, once again, men and women are equal, um, equally loved, equally valued, um, there's not an intelligence gap between the two. In fact, many of us men would probably say our wives are smarter than we, um, and could be true many times, but it's this idea of this is the structure that God's put in place. And so last week we looked at how God did that from a very high level. And so he instituted men, and we can see that here in the scripture, what Paul is telling Timothy. But we also see that there was a plurality of, of men that led. It's elders, it's plural. Um, and, and we are blessed by the fact that here at the church we have five elders that help oversee and lead and teach the church and to care for the flock. 
We also looked at they, they, what kind of, um, they're, they're placed here to care for the flock and to be over them. And as I was kind of thinking through that, I, I thought about this passage I wanted to share with you in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. It says, because I think this will, this will set up what we're going to talk about today and the importance of this. It says, remember your leaders and submit to them. Okay, so why, why would, here's this voluntary submission inside the church to submit to the leadership of the church. I'm going to talk a little bit about that, but why is that important? Well, it goes on here. It says, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, he says, okay, God has placed some, some leaders, some, some teachers and leaders, pastor, elders, what do you want to call them, in the church. I want you to voluntarily submit to them. Why is that important? Why must I do that? Because they're keeping watch over your souls. And they're going to have to give an account before God on how they did. That's a heavy thing. And, and so when I think about this, I'm thinking about God has established this structure for his purposes, but, but the main purpose the couple purposes I would share here is that, that he cares for the bride. He cares for the flock. For those that have come to know him, for those that he has saved, he is sheltering them in a body of believers in the flock, and he's going to put shepherds over them to care for them. What a loving, beautiful thing that God is doing. Not only does he save us by sending his own son to the cross to die and to, to basically give his life away for us, but even after that incredible salvation happens, and as we're walking through our life, as we're being sanctified, as we're being made holy before the Lord, he puts shepherds in our midst if we're in a good local church to care and to help us. And that's so important. But notice that we have to be willing to submit to them. I submit to the elders. I, I submit to their their leadership in my life and their, their critique of my life and their rebuke of my life sometimes. And, and I want that and I need that. And so, so if, that's, if that's that important, then what I think what Paul is saying is he says, look, this is that important. If, if God is doing this with men and, and putting this for, to care for his bride, you know, we, we've said that, I've said this many times lately, that God is shaping the bride. He's purifying the bride, the church. Why? Because it's going to be presented to his son. We're the bride. We are in, we should be splendid, we should be holy, we should be blameless. Now, obviously, the death of Christ is what does that for us. The death and resurrection, his work ultimately does that. But God says, no, but I want you to then begin to be sanctified and live that way. Yes, I've made you right, I've made you holy in Christ, but now I want you to grow up into that. And so for that to take place, God says, okay, I'm going to put a structure together that is going to help promote that, and we're going to call it the church. God calls us the church, and he's going to put people in that structure to be able to help us. And so what's the big idea this morning? God desires qualified men to humbly lead his church. Now, notice I said qualified. Not every man is qualified. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. It could be that they're not qualified for those reasons. It could be that just God is not calling them and leading them in that direction. They may be living very holy before the Lord, but it's just not, it's not what God is, is calling them to do. 
We all have different gifts and works or different gifts and abilities to be able to use and talents in the church. But here what we see is that God is going to begin to unfold here through Paul that he's telling Timothy that the men that you put in these roles of overseers, Timothy, must be qualified. Not anyone can step into this role. Why? Because it's caring for the souls of people, of the sheep. Because they're going to have to stand and give an account of their, their effort. So not only do I not want to put someone in charge over the sheep for the sheep's sake, but even for the shepherd that we're putting there or the elder that we're putting there, I'm, we are putting him in a place where he is going to be held to account before the Lord. And if he is not qualified, we would not want to put him there for his own sake. And so God desires qualified men to humbly lead his church. So let's begin to look at verses 2 through 7 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter, two, chapter 3, verse 2. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. Wow, that's a lot in one verse. So let's just pick that apart a little bit. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. That's not a term that we use probably a whole lot in our, in our, our culture today. Uh, or, or do you live a life above reproach? What, is, what does that mean? This idea of, of living in a way that pretty much you're blameless. Um, you, you, there's, you're unrebukable. No one can rebuke you because you're not doing anything that, that is worthy of rebuke. One of my favorite ways to put this is one who gives no ground for accusation. In other words, I've, I've not given any ground out there for accusation, right? And I'm not saying I've lived perfectly that way. Clearly, I've not, right? And, and I want to establish this too. What Paul is saying here, of this idea above reproach, is, is a lifestyle the way to live. It is not saying that someone must be perfect and never struggle in any area. That's not what it's saying. And I will tell you that the the qualifications that he gives here for elders is something that we should all aspire to. All of us should want and can grow in these areas and should for the glory of God to become more like him. And I will tell you the world is in desperate need of good examples and witnesses in our world. And so we should all aspire to these things. So this idea of, of living above reproach, it's what Paul is kind of starting here with. He's saying, okay, Timothy, whoever you put in this position, man, no one can bring anything against them. That's the idea. Don't put anybody in this that, that has a, a kind of a background that people could say things about. When you think about politics right now in our world, um, you know, it doesn't matter, seem like no matter who runs for office Rather, and I think sometimes there's lies made up, but, but there's just so many things that we look into people's backgrounds and we say, man, that, I mean, we just got a guy that got elected to Congress that lied about everything here in the last six, eight months. Just lied about it all, and yet he's still there, right? There's just such corruption. And, and what Paul is saying is we can't, we can't have men over the church. It's too precious of a thing. The bride is too precious to be men that have that type of reputation. And so if you look at 1 Timothy 6 and I'm going to only jump to 1 Timothy 6 a few times because in 1 Timothy and, and Titus, um, they're letters that are written to two young men, and so there's a lot of repetition here. And so I don't want to cover a lot of those things because we'll cover those at another point when we go through uh, 2 Timothy and Titus. But here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13 and 14, it says this. He tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Jesus or Christ Jesus who is the testimony before 
and in his testimony before Pontius Pilate, made good, made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying at the end of his letter? Six is kind of the end of the letter to Timothy. Boy, he's, he's putting it on Timothy. He says, Timothy, in the presence of God, right, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. He's saying, before God, before Christ, who made this good profession, Timothy, I'm challenging you, right? I'm challenging you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. What's the commandment? It's the gospel here. It's the presentation of the gospel. It's the truth of the word. It's, it's the law to, to, to bring grace. He said, Timothy, keep it unstained. Before God, I'm asking you to do this. How long are we to do this? Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus. So what he's really telling Timothy is that, that one of the things that we should live as the church, and Timothy specific, specifically, he's addressing Timothy here, but I think he's speaking to the church as a, as a whole. He's saying we should live in such a way that, that we hold the commandment, we hold the truth of the gospel, the, the sovereignty of his word in such a way that we are un, unblemished, unstained, free from reproach. No one can accuse us until the appearing of our Lord. And so he kind of gives this overarching thing here. And it goes on here in verse 2, and it says, the husband of one wife. I'm going to spend a few minutes here. Um, this has been a great debate in, in denominations, in Christendom, um, this term, the husband of one wife for this elder role. We clearly can see, uh, you know, okay, be, living above reproach, we're going to see all these reasons, but this term, the husband of one wife, there's many views here. The, the Ridge elders over the years have, have, have come down after studying scripture and have, have put something in our circle, and I'll, I'll explain it to you, kind of where we rest here and what we think scripture teaches and says. Um, I respect greatly other churches that have come down someplace differently here in this. And so there's a few, um, I'll just give you a few of the major views out there. Some would argue that you have to be married to be an elder because it says the husband of one wife. So if you're single, you can't be. The Catholic Church takes that from there. Now, there's other places in Scripture which just tears that down. It does not support that whatsoever. But there are some churches that would say if you're not married, then you cannot be a pastor or an elder. And they have their reasons beyond even Scripture here, I'm sure. Another one would be that it means that you... You can't be a polygamist. You can't have multiple wives. That was not really a big deal at that time in this culture. That did take place, but it wasn't a huge issue. It is possible that that could be it, but yet I don't think so. I don't think that's really what he's pointing to here. It could be that someone cannot be divorced because if you've been divorced and remarried, then you would have theoretically two wives, your first wife and your second wife. Many, some churches definitely rest on that. I think there's some reasons to say that that's a good piece, that's a good way of looking at it. Um, there are some challenges to even that, that piece because we see in Scripture that Jesus seemingly allows for divorce in sexual morality and adultery. 
Also that if a spouse, an unbelieving spouse wants to leave, to let them go. And so that would say that if an unbelieving spouse left, that that person then could not become an elder at a church because if they remarried, then they could never marry. And there are some churches that feel that way and denominations and scholars, and I, I, I get that. Then there's a view that says what really this is talking about is faithfulness to your spouse. This whole passage here, 2 through 7, is one of reputation, character, and all of that. And so it, some would say, and this is where, I'll tell you, this is where the rich elders rest. And as we would say, it's about a faithfulness to your current spouse. That divorce doesn't necessarily rule you out because you've been married more than once. Now, does that mean that if one of our elders started the process of a divorce right now that we would say, oh, that's okay? No. We would ask them to step down. What about if someone steps forward and said, you know, I'd like to, you know, consider being an elder, um, and we started inter- talking to them and speaking to them, and they say, yeah, I, I was, you know, I was divorced last year. Okay, we probably wouldn't put them as an elder. Not now. I can't give you a hard date. I can't say 10 years, 5 years, you know, 50 years, 20 years. I, I can't give you that. Because one of the things that we're going to look at is we're going to look at the overall character. We're going to look at... Well, why did you get divorced? How, how has that worked out in your own heart with the Lord? Have you, have you repented? Have you taken on um, responsibility for what took place? Have you, how is the relationship with your ex-spouse? All of these pieces are part of it because there's, there's this piece about could someone bring accusations against you? Could, do you have a good uh, rapport with people, a good reputation among people, or do you not? I'll just be honest with you. I've wrestled for, with this for many years, and especially over the last three or four years as I study Scripture more. Um, I am the husband of one wife. However, my wife was divorced 35 years ago. Does that eliminate me? Should I step down? Churches see this differently. We have come to this place to say it is about a reputation. It's about being faithful to one's wife. And that is obviously, as all things like this are, um, it's subjective a little bit. And so um, we trust that other godly men will be able to sit with a man and, and look into his life and pray with him and ask him questions and, and do much, many other things to be able to determine whether uh, this is a man qualified for eldership. In fact, in the NIV, the New Living, or the, um, New Living Tran- or Version, um, it says, now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife. They translate it there, faithful to his wife, not the husband of one wife. Now, that's just a translation determination. I'm not saying one is better than the other. Um, I think probably in the Greek, uh, husband of one wife is probably a good way to translate it. But it's what do we take away from that statement. Paul doesn't use the term never divorced. Um, it's interesting because there in the text, you know, we, we can have sin in our past and we can be horrible people and still be considered an elder because we all start out as sinners. We all start out this way. And so does grace cover all that as long as we are above reproach in our life now? And so that's kind of where the elders have rested. That's kind of in our circle, you might add, may say. All right, 
So if you have questions about that, please feel free to come see me. I'll be happy to talk to you about that and any other questions you have about that. Um, Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband or wife, sober-minded and self-controlled. Sober-minded and self-controlled. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Um, I really think he's, he's beginning to kind of scratch the surface here about that wine cannot be, specifically alcohol, cannot be a thing that's going to cloud your judgment. You must be sober-minded. I think it really does mean sober, kind of alcohol uh, not affecting your mind, right? Then it's this idea of sensible or self-controlled, this idea of being sensible and disciplined. Um, you must be disciplined. You, you, you cannot be an undisciplined person and then be placed in charge of the flock or overseeing and caring for the flock. There has to be a, a self-control. And, and notice that the order of these things a little bit. And once again, it's a little subjective, but we say, okay, he's talking about drinking and then self-control, right? We, we see that these kind of things go together, right? Galatians 5.22, Paul talks about the, the fruit of the Spirit, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So all of these things, that these, these qualifications that Paul is putting forward are really kind of wrapped up also in the fruits of the Spirit. And that's why we should all ascribe to these things. It's just the things that we should all desire in our life and be working towards and letting God continue to change us and transform us. And then it goes on there. It says, respectable. I think the best way to look at this in the terms of, of the way the Greek looks at this is this term respectable is the, is the outward expression of the inward self-control. It's the outward expression of the self-control that you've, you've managed in your life. In other words, how people view you is respectable. They see the self-control as you interact with them and you're respectable. It's the outward appearance of that inward thing that you've been able to have control over. Philippians, Paul puts it this way in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5. It says, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. If you're familiar with that passage, Paul is talking to a couple writing to the, the Ephesian church, and, and, or Philippian church, and talking about uh, these two women that are debating, and they're struggling, they're arguing, and he's basically saying, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Be respectable. Let, let the self-control that you're not exhibiting right now have its work in you, have its way in you, so that you can come across as respectable. Because if you're going to lead, if you're going to, to serve the local church, that's how you must live, and it needs to be seen that way. It needs to be evidenced that way. And so we see that not only do we are faithful to their wife to be an elder, but we must have control over oneself. We must, an elder must have control over oneself. The last thing there in verse 2, it says, be hospitable. Hospitable. Now, I'll explain this a little bit because I think in our culture today, um, we don't, we don't use that word a whole lot, hospitality. We use it in, in the, you know, the industry, the service industry, the hospitality industry. And let's think about the first century here, though, for a second. There wasn't hotels in every corner and every town. There wasn't restaurants everywhere. And so if you traveled, if you were a Christian or even as just a traveling you know, Gentile, if you were traveling from city to city, were there inns that you could stay in? yes. Were there certain places probably you could get a meal? Yes, but not like there is today. 
And, and maybe you didn't have funds, maybe you didn't have money. You know, we, we even heard from Jay a little bit, you know, this idea that, that he began to rob because he didn't have money, he, he needed to eat. And, and so many of the people that were poor that traveled, and especially um, pastors that would travel and, and speak in different cities in the early church, they needed someplace to stay. They, they, they maybe didn't have a full-time job, obviously they're traveling. How did they make living? Paul was a tent maker, so he would go places, and he would make tents, and he would work. But a lot of times, people needed some place to stay. So, so what I think Paul is telling Timothy here is that an elder, if he's going to manage the church, he needs to love people in such a way that he welcomes them into their home. He, he, he wants to provide a space for them. He wants to feed them a meal. He wants to care for them in, in some very tangible way. Hebrews 13, verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Paul is saying, look... Here in Hebrews, I don't know if it was Paul writing this book, we don't know, but this, this idea of the author is saying, look, even to people that you do not know, you should be hospitable to, you should care for. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 says, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It should be your desire. Now, let me contrast that with the, the 21st century. We live in a culture today where um, for many of us, we have electric garage door openers. We pull in, we shut the door. We walk out into our backyard where we have a privacy fence because we want to be alone. We like the idea of being hospitable, but how many of us have had a needy family to our home to feed them a meal? How many, when people are traveling, do we open up our homes and say, yeah, come stay with us? Now, we'll say the, the other way is true, too. When I travel, uh, when we go on mission trips, I'm like, oh, let's get a hotel because I want to be alone. I don't want to stay with anybody. No offense. I, I, I just want to be alone, right? I, because we, we, in our culture today, we become so independent, so unwilling to have a relationship, to be able to, to be real with each other. It's awkward. It's, it's weird. And so we just don't. Even in our own homes, our kids go to their rooms and shut the door. Family time has really shrunk in a lot of homes. We don't sit around the dinner table the same way anymore because we, we don't want to be known by people. And so then we end up and get known by cell phones and screens. We, we insulate ourselves from reality and relationships, and it is so unhealthy. But that's, that's our culture. So, but I would even argue, I mean, I think about now, as a, as a pastor, <laughs> I would, we would love to have people to our home to eat and get to know you. However, like a lot of us, my wife and I both work. And we get home at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and we're exhausted. And so we don't want to invite you. <laughs> or we have a German Shepherd, and there's hair all over the floor sometimes in the kitchen. Wood floor, we sweep it every day and it just comes back as soon as he walks through the room. And so we don't want to do it. Or we're worried about what we're going to fix, whether you'll like it or not. So it's easier just not to have you. I mean, that's, think about that. Is that not true for you? It would be good though, wouldn't it? It would. We'd be a blessing to each other. We'd get to know each other in a way that we would never not know each other. What I've said before is, this goes way back in, in my time at uh, Emory Worldwide when I was working as a manager and supervisor. There was a guy that, that uh, worked in St. Louis. His name was Jim DePaul. Oh, that's going back 20 years ago. And 
he, would, he had a GM plan and, and it no, no, would never fail. We would fail to get some little tiny box of bolts on the plane and he'd call me and he would just be so upset at me because that box of bolts didn't get there and we're going to shut the GM plant down. And I hated that guy. He came to town once and we all went out to dinner and I sat next to him. And I began to really appreciate Jim DePaul. He was a guy, just a guy trying to do his job, sweet guy. I never looked at Jim the same way again. In fact, I would hold that plane for five minutes to get that box on there because I was doing it for Jim. It changed my relationship that one dinner out. Can you imagine if the body of Christ fellowship together that way? Yeah, I know we do some carry-ins, and I think those are good. But if you had people to your home, if you could lay down all your pride and all your worries and, 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 and do those things. And so I think what he's telling us is that if you want to be an elder, you need to be wanting to cultivate that culture, and it needs to start with you. So what do we see here? Elders have a caring heart for people. Notice it says, even if they're strangers, even if it's the people that we don't know, I have to force myself sometimes to do those things. I know for many of you, going down to Target Dayton is one of those places, right? Going up to a table of people that you do not know, that, that, that are living a life completely different than you, that, that may look different, act different, you know, just... And you have to sit down and you need to speak with them and talk to them. But what a joy it is if you're just willing to lay down your fears and do that. And what a blessing it is to the people that you do that for. Then at the end of verse 2, it says, able to teach. Able to teach. So obviously, one of the most important things about being an elder, and it is the thing that separates us from, from the rest of, of people that are still ascribing to all these things, and, and, and that we must be able to teach. So if you can't teach, then that's not an eldership role for you. We see this in Acts chapter 6. We read this last week where uh, there was a disagreement between the Hellenistic widows and, and the Hebrew widows, and they weren't being served the same way. And so um, some people complained, and, and the the apostles said, well, it wouldn't be right for us to not teach, so we're going to appoint seven men to take care of these people and serve them. And so what they were saying, and basically saying, look, we can't give up teaching because teaching the gospel is important, and we can't not, not do that. Years ago, I was an executive management training class in, at Ohio State, and um, they were talking about this, you know, very CEO makes, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and... Um, I think this is just kind of the way this looks. It's another way of looking at this. He came out of his office and he started to make some copies. And the administrative office manager came up and said, you can't do that. And he's like, well, I'm the CEO. I can do whatever I want. He says, she said, no, you can't do that. He said, well, why can't I do this? She says, because you make $65 an hour and I make 20. You cannot be, we can't afford you to make copies. You can't do that. I mean, she had, she's brilliant. I mean, it's like, you do something that I can't do, so you need to be doing that. And that's really, I think, what the apostles are saying here. He says, look, you're doing something that we can't do. I can't. There's certain people that can teach, and they need to be teaching. If other people can serve, let them serve. Let's do these, do these things. 
And so I think what we're seeing here in the text is, is Paul is just reminding Timothy that if you're going to put a person in this role, they need to be able to teach. Now, why was that so important? Obviously, the obvious thing is, is obviously the gospel is important and we must be able to teach it. But, but I think there's more to it than that. If we go once again to the end of 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, verses 3 and 5, notice that what Paul says here is if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound word, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teachings that accord with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels without words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. How can I sum that up? He's saying, look, you need to have men that are going to protect the truth of the gospel. It's not enough just to know that Jesus died for you. You have to have men that are willing to stand on the front line and protect the gospel from false teaching. Think about what was taking place here in the early church. The church was just emerging. The gospel had been made known. Paul is writing letters and sharing the truth of the gospel and understanding what it means to be saved and the work of Christ and who he is and what it means to be justified and forgiven. Because it's not what the culture was expecting. It's clearly not what the Jews were thinking. They thought Jesus was going to come as an earthly king. The Gentiles, they had all their own pagan gods. That wasn't, they didn't care about this. And so all of these other teachings were taking, were battling with the truth of the gospel trying to emerge, specifically what we call Judaizers. Judaizers were people that were, they were Hebrews, they were Jews. They saw that Jesus may be the Messiah, but what they were saying is, well, no, we really have to be Jew first. We have to be circumcised. We have to do all these things. And, and they didn't like what Paul was saying. And so what did they do? They left Antioch and they followed him to modern-day Turkey and they hunted him down and they debated him in every synagogue that they could find where he was and every city, and sometimes they would beat him in inches of his life and leave him for dead. And Paul would get up and go back in and continue to preach the gospel and rebuff them and debate them in the truth of Scripture. We see Paul appears before Romans and shares the gospel. He has to be able to articulate it. And I'm just saying, if we're going to put men over the flock to lead, one of the critical criteria is that they have to be able to teach the word of God, refute false teachings. That means they need to know the scriptures. It is not enough to just say, well, yeah, I love Jesus and I know he saved me. Well, what about X, Y, and Z? What about if a Mormon comes up to you and talks to you? What about if a Jehovah's Witness shows up at our church? What about if, if this person or this person comes and, and maybe comes from a different denominations and they have these questions? If you say, well, I don't really know, but I know Jesus loves you. I know he died for you. That's not enough. I'm not saying you have to have a, a seminary degree. I'm not saying you need to be a scholar. Lord knows I don't, I'm neither one of those things but you need to be willing to dive into scripture and to learn and to study to show yourself approved. So what do we see here? An elder has to have the ability to effectively teach the word of God. An elder has to have the ability to effectively teach the word of God. 
All right, so Paul here has laid out several things that are positive things. A husband of one wife, sober-minded, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now he kind of shifts and he's going to say, now, Timothy, there's some things that should not be in an elder's life. These are unacceptable things. He's on here in verse 3. It says, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. I think it's interesting, once again, how the, the sequence of things things go is maybe this is my perception, but not a drunkard, not violent. So in other words, if you're drinking, you're probably going to be more violent and you're going to be quarrelsome. And so not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome. Now this idea of not a drunkard, does that mean you can't, cannot drink? No, that's not what that's saying. It says that you should not be drunk. Now in the early cent- in the first century here, um, I'm not exactly sure. There was different levels of, of uh, just like today, there's different levels of alcohol, different levels of um, how much alcohol is in something, the percentage of alcohol in wine. There was certain that were more, more grape juicy and more a little bit, uh, and then there was hard wine. We can see that all throughout Scripture. And I'm not saying that he's saying, oh, it was grape juice. No, I believe that Jesus really made wine that was fermented. I believe that. But I think what's important here is that in that day, there was issues with alcohol just like there is today. Absolutely there is. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, it says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So I'm just share you my story a little bit. I think that in that time, he had water, which was many times whether you could find good water or not. You had wine, because it could be transported and stay stay fine to drink because of its fermentation and probably had some goat's milk of some sort. Didn't have a lot of choices. There was also some medicinal purposes to be able to drink wine, I think, because some of the things that they were eating. Today, if I've been to Kroger's or Myers lately, tell me how many times of beverages that there are in the hundreds, maybe a thousand, I don't know. You have choices. They didn't have choices. If you know anybody that's an alcoholic or a family of an alcoholic, you'll know the, the, the damage, the devastation that it can do in a life into a family. Now, does that mean it's, you can't drink? No. That's not what it's saying. You have the right to drink. You have the right to have a glass of wine. The question is, is it wise? I'm looking at elders, and would we have an elder that said, yeah, I have a glass of wine from time to time? I don't know that I would be part of the team that would say, no, you you can't do that. Would I rather the elders didn't probably drink? Yeah, I probably would. Do I drink? No, I don't. Would I like to have a glass of wine from time to time? Yes, I would. Not because I get drunk. I just used to drink wine. I just like a glass of wine with a nice dinner, you know. But why don't I? Because it's not a sin. Because I want to be above reproach. Not because I want to be legalistic. Not because I want to be prideful. Because when your son or daughter comes into a restaurant, I don't want to be sitting there drinking a margarita and having to try and explain why I'm drinking this, but they shouldn't. And why that if they do this, they could have more than one and they can't control it, but I can control it. So I just don't want to go there. That's just me. I'm not judging anybody. If I went out to lunch with you and you had a a beer or a glass of wine with lunch, I would not say anything and I would not judge you. 
I would not. But there's such risk. When I was in my early 20s, we used to go out west, and maybe I've told this story, I don't know, but I used to go out west, and, and we would hike on these trails that, that were three or four feet wide, and we hiked to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, we hiked Zion National Park, and there was 200, 300-foot drop right there. Can I walk on the edge? Yes, I could. I didn't. <laughs> but I could. I had the freedom to be there. Why wouldn't I do that? Because it's dangerous there. There's risk. Do I have the freedom? Yes. I would more hug the, the wall. Now, about five years ago, my wife and I went out to Zion, and we just decided not even to get on most of those trails. <laughs> we, just, we just didn't feel comfortable doing that. However, we were on a few that was that way. It was straight down. I remember like it was yesterday. I'm sure my wife does too. We're about 10 feet away from these three college girls. Girl goes right up to the edge. Says, look, guys, take my picture. And I know some of you think I'm going to fall off the stage a lot of Sunday mornings that I'm not paying attention, but I'm paying attention. And you know, every year people die. Every year people fall. Does she have the right to do that? Yes, she does. Was it a really cool picture probably to show her friends? Yeah. Is it wise? I don't think so. So when it says not a drunkard, I just, I just want to put a little bit more emphasis on that. I think that we just need to be careful. You know, there are moments, my wife and I love to go like to little cabins in different places around Ohio and stay for a weekend or something. And sometimes I'm like, no one will know. I can have a glass of wine. And I'm tempted. And I know that it wouldn't be sin. But I don't want to have to tell your students or your children when they ask me, do you drink, Pastor Raleigh? Oh, yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> right? I just don't want to do it. I just, I just, I just want to... There's so many other things I don't want you to mirror about my life. I'm at least trying to get that one right, right? Above reproach. All right. Not violent, but gentle. Fruit of the Spirit. We kind of talked about that, right? Look, as an elder, as a shepherd, we should care for the sheep. I've said it many times. Sheep are led, and, and there's a staff that's used to gently nudge them, to save them, to hook them, to bring them out of the crevice. We are not men with, with cattle prods that have electric to them to make the sheep move, right? We're not violent. We don't, we don't lead that way. We should serve Right? We lead by, by, we want people to follow us. We're not, we don't need to be violent. We can be gentle. Definitely not quarrelsome, not contentious or argumentative. That really, he's saying that because, the, as you read there in that, that passage at the end of 1 Timothy chapter 6, is this whole idea of false teachers were argumentative. They were always debating, always trying to, to tear down the truth of the gospel. They were argumentative. And so he's saying, you can't be argumentative. And here, this is where my wife would say, Raleigh, you should not be a pastor because I argue a lot. I debate. I'm working at trying to be more gentle and more loving. I just like to debate. I like to wrestle. In fact, even when I know I'm wrong, I will debate. I can't. I'm working at it. James chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. Here he's talking to the church and James says this, he says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy 
and good fruits, impartial and sincere, right? So we should be sincere and able to reason and think. I, I don't need to debate. I can share the gospel, and if you disagree, that's okay. If you have a different opinion about something, it's really the kind of culture that I want here at the church is I want us to disagree even about theological things. You may go to, to Dick's class, and, and you may have a different view of something in the class, and that's okay. But hear it out, talk about it, look at Scripture, wrestle for truth. That's where we should be. All right, so what else do we see? Not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. Man, I think today having Jay here and talking about just his life and finances, and you can see how much money and wealth pull on us, even unknowingly. Right? I was out the, the center in between, out the table out there in between services and, and you know, $38 and uh, that's, you know, somewhere around 400 and some dollars a child for a year. And I was reading the newspaper the other day, somebody's getting ready to buy an art, uh, art collection from some oil guy in Texas and it's estimated it's going to bring $50 million. I just thought to myself, you know how many kids you could change their lives for $50 million? We'd be sold out of packets out here. I don't know how many kids, somebody could do the math there, assuming that we sponsor them for five years or 10 years. $50 million. I mean, staggering. So I want to point to people like that and say, man, they're they're horrible. They should do that. And then I look at my own life. I say, well, I, I live hands down more than Jay did. What am I suffering? What am I giving up? We don't have it because we can't have it, but $150 on cable for entertainment, cell phones and hundreds of dollars with our family plans. And here I can change a life. Now, obviously, we, God isn't asking us to be poor. He's not asking us to give everything away. That wouldn't be helpful. Then we'd be dependent. But I think we need to really wrestle with, like, God has given us wealth to do something for his glory, not for ourselves. And I just want you to wrestle with that. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Are you content with what you have? Luke Middlestetter preached on that a few months ago. So what do we see here? To be an elder, we must be known for our gentleness and contentment. Gentleness and contentment. Now, I'm not saying that we should be content with, with evil or with false teaching. I'm saying this within a money respect. We should not be content that, that we should sit still. We should be always wrestling to get the gospel out and to work at, at growing in our holiness. We should not be content with, with sitting by the side and not doing anything. All right, 1 Timothy 4, 5. We've got to finish up here. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? This is somewhat pretty self-explanatory. Look, this is the proving ground. If, I, if we look at a man's home and it's in disarray, his finances are not good, they're in debt, his children are disobedient. Um, that doesn't mean his children have to be perfect. It's just They're always disobedient. He doesn't, he doesn't manage them well. Um, his house is you know, just in disarray in all sorts of ways. If he can't manage that, why would you ever put him over your, the church? 
Why would you ever let him manage the finances and the things of the church? You know, I've, I've said this before. I mean, we, all of us should work to be debt-free. We don't want to be a slave to the lender. I'm, I'm, I'm not prideful in this, but I'm grateful to say that by God's grace, my wife and I, about five, six years ago, became debt-free. We would like a new car. We, our cars are falling apart. But we're saving because we're, by God's grace, we're not going to go back into debt even for a car. It's not going to do it. Because I take this seriously when God says, if you're going to manage my church, I need you to be faithful in the things that you do at your home. And by God's grace, we have a group of people, we call them the board of directors, both men and women, um, that have managed the finances of our church in such a way that we are debt-free. Debt-free, 30 acres, 20,000 square foot building, and we owe nothing to anyone. And is it tempting to say, well, we have money. Let's do this. Let's do that. Yes, I feel that temptation, just like I did the other day when I was at Home Depot. There's all sorts of tools and things and things I'd love to have and colors and cool gadgets and, and a $50 gift card. I got out of there only paying $1.50. I want us to manage the Lord's house well. And so when we look at a, a man, we're going to look into his life and look into how he's living and how he's structured, the home is structured and, and how he does with finances and how he does these things because it is the proving ground. It is that important. Matthew 25, verse 21, says that his master said to him, this is Jesus telling a parable. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will sets you over much. It's just a principle. Like, like, if your child is faithful over a little bit, you'll give him a little bit more or her a little bit more. If you can trust them to come home on time, maybe you'll say, well, I'll, I'll let you do this. If you handle that $20 I gave you, well, I, I may do something a little bit more with you. That's just a principle in Scripture. And so he's just saying, if it's that important in all of these other areas, we come to the, to the person that's going to set over and help serve and, and lead the church. It's that important. I remember reading just recently, in a year or two ago, um, Charles Spurgeon, um, a pastor in Europe, many big church, a theologian. He did membership interviews, 14,000 of them. Some days, 20 interviews a day to see if persons' lives matched with what they said they believed. And they would send people to your work before you became a member to ask people at your work how you were living. Did you live for Christ? Did you mention Jesus to anyone? Did you, were you sharing your faith? Because Spurgeon said, look, it's that important. I'm just not, like the, the problem is, is that the American church, the church in the West today, everybody comes and it's just an event. We just all have an event and we claim to love Jesus. And I'm not saying that we don't. And some people do and some people don't. But, but I don't think that was the purpose. I think we should be, we are, we are a bride. We are to be sanctified. We are to be changing. We're to help hold each other accountable. And God has put shepherds over us to be able to help us do that. And so they need to have a proven ability to manage his family well. A proven ability to manage his family well. All right. Last two verses. He must not be a recent convert. Don't ask me. Year? Two years? Five years? I don't think, I think the point is, is that is there a maturity that's developed? So I became a Christian at, uh, at 10, 
I'm 20 now. Can I be an elder of the church? Probably not. I'm not saying you can't be young and be an elder. I'm just saying there's probably some maturity there that hasn't life experiences that haven't happened yet. And what Paul is saying here is I don't want people to be puffed up. I don't want people to be conceited. In fact, in the Greek there, that word is smoke or to make smoke. In other words, you can't see from all the things. You're just blinded by your conceit. And then it says there, it says, and may fall into condemnation of the devil. There's some debate on exactly what that phrase means. It's this, I think what it's trying to say there is the same type of condemnation that the devil has for his pride, you will fall into that kind of condemnation. In fact, we see it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. It says, for everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. Condemnation is another word for judgment. It's this idea that God will judge the prideful. He will judge us. And if you live that way, if you are puffed up and conceited, there's, that's just going to be a, a judgment upon you. Now, if you're a believer, obviously that is not eternal judgment, but it is a judgment for us. Verse 7, he wraps it up here and it says, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This idea that we, how we live outwardly, I think about it all the time. Um, you know, obviously, I've met hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people here at the church in the community. I don't remember everybody's name, unfortunately. Um, but every place I go, I want to present Christ. I, I don't know. Maybe they've come to the church. Maybe, and I want to do it just because it honors God. But I'm, I'm thoughtful. I'm very aware of the fact that how I interact with the, the lady at IGA when I'm checking out or the, the person at the, the meat counter, how I'm coming across them. Am I talking to them? Am I rude to them? Am I cold to them? The, the person at the bank, the person at, at, at the Napa store. I, I want to be able to, to say, have no grounds for accusation. I want them to say, man, Okay, I saw you preaching that you were preaching about Jesus, but you were just a real, you know, nasty guy to me. It's a lifestyle. It's a desire that we live this way because it brings glory to God. And it's not just internally in the church, but we should have this reputation among the, the community. Among the community. We're not one way here and another way outside. That's integrity. We can't have it both ways. 1 Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.12. It says, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers because of what you believe, they will see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. They're gonna speak evil because of what you believe because they disagree with that, but they won't speak evil of you because of how you are and your good, goodness and the good deeds that you are. And then that last piece of it says, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Here now, it's speaking of, is when it references the devil here or Satan, is this idea that it's the trap that he lays for us, right? This, this whole trap that, that if, if we're not conducting ourselves in a way and he's tempting us to live a certain way and to speak a certain way, that that's a trap that the devil is laying for us because he knows it ruins our reputation, and thus, who wants to come to a church when the pastor, the elders that go to that church are really rude and nasty when they see them in public or not generous or not loving? 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There's just all sorts of pitfalls, and we want to help each other stay away from them and guard ourselves. And that's one of the reasons why God has placed elders over the churches so that we can help that, help the flock live that way, and you can help us as well. All right, what's the takeaway this morning? What's the takeaway? Everyone should strive to live above reproach. But an elder must have an established godly reputation. Every one of us, every child, every man, every woman should strive to live a life above reproach, to live holy. But an elder must have an established godly reputation. That's what the scripture says. It makes absolute sense. Not, this is not, this is, if, if someone is desiring eldership, I just want to, I'm, I'm not saying you have to be perfect. I'm not saying you have to, to, to live holy. Clearly, I have my issues. I have flaws. I have struggles. So we're not saying that. But, but you also have to say, well, I'm willing to open up my life and let you in to see them all and let us make a decision and come alongside you. And maybe we'll say, hey, you're, you're, you're doing great, but here's an area. Let's, let's give it six months. Let's see if you can work on this. Let's, let's, let's get that right first. I'm not saying we're going to come and let's say you have a mortgage. I'm not saying, okay, you have a mortgage, so you have debt. We're not going to. That's not what I'm saying. But if you have three credit cards and you're upside down and, and you, you don't know how to, you're buying cards that you can't afford, and yeah, then that's a problem, right? So I'm not saying that we are, the elders that we have are, are, are self-righteous or, or anything like that, but, but we are going to peer into your life. We're going to talk to your wife. We're going to talk to maybe your children. We're going to talk to your friends. We're going to see because, because why? Because we're going to put you over God's church. Leave you with this passage, Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. So what's Paul telling the Philippians? Look, how you live matters. Don't do it with grumbling or disputing. Be blameless and innocent without blemish. Why? Because we, we live in a crooked generation. And we need to be witnesses for Christ. We, we, we love people. We want people to come to know Christ. And one of the ways that God uses it is he uses our, our reputation, our, our character, and how we live when people see us. So how does he close that passage? He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I'll just ask you the question this morning. Are you shining? When you go to Kroger's, is your behavior, when someone cuts in line or when the person at the meat counter is kind of not very helpful. Are you loving on them? I, I remember um, I used to have to take water samples in every quarter from here from the church to a place in Inglewood to have it tested. And, and uh, there was a, a couple ladies, and the one lady was, you know, kind of, kind of rough, tough, you know, just kind of not very nice. And I would just, man, I'd just kill her with kindness. I'd kill her with kindness. Kill her with kindness. I just loved on her. And, and I don't know, a few years in, one day she just said, you know, I'm so appreciative for you. She said, you're always so kind and loving. Yeah, and that's not a prideful thing. That's, be, that's just wanting to try and say, man, I just want to honor God. I, I said, look, 
people that, people that don't know Christ, especially people that don't know Christ, they don't understand what kind of love that we have in us, how we've been loved. I just want to show that. I want to say, man, there's love available for you like this, man. And I'll tell you about him. So how's your light shining? We should all strive for this. By God's grace, we rest in his work. So it's not a works-based thing. Don't hear that. It's not a works-based thing. It's a, it's a response of love to be able to do that. And if you're a guy here sitting this morning and you desire to be an elder, look at those things and say, how am I doing? Push into those things. Come to me. Come to Pastor Brian. Come to one of our elders. Talk to us. We'd be happy to help, help you in your journey. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our time together today. Oh, thank you for, first and foremost, for saving us, for providing a sinless sacrifice of your son so that we could be made right before you, so that we could be justified, forgiven, not by anything we've ever done, but because of the work and the grace that you give us through Christ. But Father, help our response be one of love, of joy, of wanting and desiring to live holy before you, above reproach. Father, we're going to rest in your grace because we know we're going to fall short of that. We know that I fall short of it. But Lord, we know that when we do that, you will use it for your your glory, and for those around us that need to see the love of Christ, need to see the gospel in action. And then, Father, we thank you for your church. We thank you for the body and how you brought it together. Help us to do better at at the fellowship of breaking down the walls between us, metaphorically the privacy fences and the garage doors that we erect in our life to separate us. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. And finally, Lord, we thank you for the qualifications, the high standard that you have set for your flock and those that serve it. May we be found faithful. And when we veer off track, may you bring loving discipline whether we're elders or sheep. Scripture says you discipline those you love. It is for love that you want us to to be able to act in such a way that honors you. Help us to do that. Help us to not run from that, but allow that and ask for it in our life. We praise you and we thank you this morning, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at theridgechurch.net. Have a blessed day.